I'm John Moscow. And I'm Amy Halpern Laugh. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Morta Beal. Morta's an educational consultant both in New York City and nationally, working across the continuum from zero to the post-secondary years. She's especially focused on college and career readiness for middle and high school students. Previously, among other positions, she was the senior director for college and career readiness at the Urban Assembly, associate director of strategic partnerships for national post-secondary success initiatives at FHI 360, and director of College Bound at New Visions for Public Schools. She helped to write and edit Turning Points 2000, Educating Adolescents in the 21st Century, and was a senior program officer for Middle Start, FHI 360's model for ensuring academic success and healthy development for middle grade students. Welcome, Maud. Hi, thank you for having me. You've been an advocate of the fit and match idea in advising high school students about colleges. What is fit and match and why is it so important? Um, well, again, thank you for having me. It's great to be talking with you both. I'll often match and fit are used interchangeably, but I do think it's helpful to differentiate between the two. And I thought that the National College Access Network, NCAN, provided a definition that I found helpful. So I'll share that, which is basically that match is the degree to which a student's academic credentials match the academic competitiveness and selectivity of the college or university or post-secondary institution at which they want to enroll. So it's, it's very objective. You either have the academic credentials that the school requires or you don't. But then there's fit, and fit is sort of, on the other hand, literally everything else. So it can include distance from a student's home, geographic location, campus atmosphere and degree of inclusivity, level of accommodation of and services for first-generation students, academic programs, you know, and, and on and on. So this is a very expansive view of what fit is, and it, and it makes it hard to capture and codify, but, but it's, you know, that doesn't diminish its importance. For example, whether social, emotional, cultural fit can be quantified or sort of pinned down is, is one example of this challenge. And you know why I think it's so important is that we know that increasingly students are going to college in the United States, but there really hasn't been any dramatic corresponding increase in college completion or degree attainment. And we know that's particularly true for low-income students of color. And there's basically sort of three prominent barriers to completion. You know, the first is pretty well known as academic, the second is financial, but the third is sort of a sense of belonging. And, and many students, and I was recently involved in a project where we were able to do some focus groups with students, um, they, they worry and wonder whether they belong in college. It's not just assumed that they should go to college for them. And so for many students, the sense of uncertainty exacerbates the challenges that they face as they prepare for or think about college. And I think Match and Fit helps to send an overall message that you know, all students are entitled to a successful post-secondary experience and that there is a good Mat and Fit for every student, no matter where they're starting. So as you're saying, you know, Fit is much more subjective than Match. How should or can counselors define this in a systematic way? And how can it be brought to scale beyond the individual counselor? So the good news is that there really are a lot of excellent online resources that counselors can use with students. There are a number that are free. And so for example, in New York City, 
every single public high school student has a college board account. It's, it's a requirement. It gives them access to PSAT and SAT pre-prep and other kinds of um, free things that are helpful to them. And it also provides something called Create Your Roadmap. And so it's, it's a way for students to, they can either, I, I, it's actually interesting, I was looking at it today and, and they have some choices for students and one of them is I know what I want and that leads the student in, in a certain direction on the website. And then there's another choice, I'm not sure where to start. And so it's really trying to you know, help students wherever they're at and part of the process is um, getting to know yourself kinds of thinking around what you enjoy doing, what don't you like doing, but ultimately leading students to create a step-by-step -step plan that they can save as part of their account. So that's a free one. There's also one called My College Matches. Um, and I thought that was an interesting one because it really puts an emphasis on helping students look specifically at majors that different colleges and institutions uh, offer and how they tie to career paths. Then there's a whole bunch that cost money. And one of the reasons they cost money is because they, they have sort of a higher level of sophistication. They're very student friendly. Um, they're very intuitive. They're much more playful in some ways, the way students can enter and use them. But one that's got, gotten a lot of attention recently in New York City is called Zello. Kind of has a process where it helps students build self-knowledge, then explore options, then a creative plan, and then learn and reassess. And it's really ideally meant to start with a student, you know, by eighth or ninth grade and it follows them throughout their time in high school. So these online resources offer sort of very systematic approaches to getting students to really understand what, what match and fit might mean for them. Otherwise, I think, you know, to, to make it more systematic is really just the goal would be to start as early as possible, you know, in the high school, ideally in ninth grade through age appropriate activities. So in a lot of schools, they use advisory and that can often mean actually using a curriculum that advisors lead students through. An example of one that I've gotten to know recently is one of my consulting clients, Jobs to the Future, is they have a curriculum that's intended to be used in advisory or after school called Possible Futures, and that helps students understand and learn sort of skills for success, like teamwork and communication. And then they also have another one that gives students opportunities to sort of explore lenses on the future. But I just think these age-appropriate approaches and activities can help students sort of develop self-knowledge and thoughts about the future is it can really help students get more out of their secondary school years. You know students are bored or that school feels irrelevant, you know, but it doesn't have to be that way. And so that's another sort of rationale for helping students to sort of see where they fit into this educational journey that they're on and hopefully help them sort of make more sense of, of why it, it matters and why it should be important to them. The National College Access Network talks about the tension that can exist between what a counselor thinks is the best fit and match and what the student and or their families think is best. Have you seen counselors have to resolve this tension and what seems to you to be the best way to do it? Well, I think this is a huge, huge part of the job in terms of having to deal, acknowledge and deal with this kind of tension. So, you know, even match is not completely straightforward because there's an increasing number of test optional schools and schools that de-emphasize standardized tests. So in theory, that's sort of opening up a lot of options for students that didn't exist before and sort of makes the match piece a little less clear cut. 
So I think you know trust is just a, it's a huge huge factor, and ideally a counselor is able to build trust with both students and their families. Obviously, families are really important for the equation all throughout a child's educational journey, and and you know especially in some ways at this moment. You know, some ways that a school can do that is have very predictable series of annual events targeted at each grade level. You know, in ninth grade, having a ninth grade orientation that includes sort of going over how the students will work with the counselor and sort of what the college process will mean for them each year. Um, having counselors work individually with students no later than eighth, eleventh grade, so that when you know that the rubber hits the road in twelfth grade, you know, first semester, that there's already a relationship there. And also, you know, I mentioned advisory. Sometimes, you know, especially because in general, college counselors just have a, a really overload in terms of the ratio of students they are required to support. Um, an advisor might be the best person to liaison with the family if that person knows the student best and, and sort of has more trust there. Um, and that's, there are different forms of distributive counseling that schools can try and, and sort of using advisors to help be that kind of family liaison around college and readiness is a promising practice, I guess. But, you know, another thing I think is really important is communication and making sure that counselors on the same page with the student and family. And so that's, again, where this idea of a post-secondary plan comes in. Um, again, there are things like College Board and Zello where you can create that plan online and, and adapt it each year, you know, and uh, it follows the students. I've seen schools use Google Docs to create post-secondary plans with students. And, you know, it, there's no one right way to do it, but the idea is really sort of that a counselor and a student sort of can be on literally on the same page because they have a shared document that they're looking at and referencing. So some researchers found that Latinx students are often pushed to attend less selective colleges than their academic records would predict. And that because these colleges may have fewer support systems, these students may actually end up dropping out at a higher rate than they would from a more selective school. Um, how can this be addressed on a systemic basis? Well, this is a huge question, and, I, and I'm certainly no expert in this area. I will say there's, you know, I'll mention two very promising practices that, you know, in general work for all students that I think can be really helpful to Latinx students and all students who, you know, are underrepresented in, in higher ed. One is college bridge programs. You know, those are programs where after you graduate from high school, you enter a program that's like a bridge to college. And usually these programs feature near peer mentoring. So you actually have college students mentoring the, the recent high school graduates and sort of helping them prepare academically and social emotionally for, for what they're going to start to encounter when they get to college. And often it just helps with a lot of the sort of the, the logistics and paperwork of getting ready for college. So college briefs programs are really, um, I think, helpful, and I wish that was just sort of mandatory. And then there's also the educational opportunity programs, and you know, the counselors that I've worked with since my days at New Vision have all often called these the golden ticket for their students because they provide both pretty intensive academic and financial support, but they also bring students into an institution as a cohort. So you kind of come in with a built-in sort of group of peers and friends, which is often really hard to develop in that first year. Just from a more national perspective, you know, there's some really prominent organizations working on this that I think are doing a great job in trying to 
to lead the way on improving outcomes for Latinx students. And one is Excelencia in Education. And I know they've collaborated with the US Department of Education around something called Hispanic Serving Institutions, or SHIs. Um, and these are institutions that tend to have 25% more or more of their students who identify as Latinx, but also have made it a very specific part of their mission to help Latinx students succeed. The Hispanic Federation does some really cool work around working with campuses in, in New York City, but all over the country to um, provide students with peer mentorship. Again, that's it's been a very promising practice in a lot of different areas, but also help students with career mentorship and an internship. And then a big one is connect, making sure they're connected and have don't have interrupted services in the social service areas that they need. I can tell you one quick anecdote if you want about some work that I did in Miami. Please, absolutely. So Miami-Dade Community College is a Hispanic serving institution, HSI. And sort of like CUNY in New York City, they are the recipient of the majority of Miami-Dade public school students, particularly those of color. And so I, I was part of an initiative there where they were working with the school district um, to really address what would become a major barrier for students, which was math. You know, the, the students were coming into Miami Dade Community College having to take remedial math and just, you know, not being able to get out of remedial math. They actually sat down looked at the data together and saw a huge number of blocks. So they started to work together um, and they actually brought in a couple of other local higher ed institutions to develop a math for college readiness course that could be taught the senior year of high school. And really, it wasn't necessarily very high level sophisticated math. It was kind of almost a refresher on all the basics that a student would need coming into college level math. You don't go into college level math and have to take with the trigonometry. Um, you need re really solid basic mathematical facility. So they, they developed this course together as a way to both help high schools better prepare their students in math, but also to sort of smooth that entry for the students. And, and it really was powerful. And just a really great collaboration in terms of the high school math, math teachers and the college professors like working together and listening to each other. And, and understanding how each of their institutions or systems work and trying to come together around supporting student success. Well, that's exciting, especially because institutions so often find it hard to collaborate just yeah. structurally and, and otherwise. Yeah. Is that continuing as far as you know? As far as I know, yeah. And I, I think the idea also just has, has grown beyond Miami-Dade, just around acknowledging math as one of those major barrier areas. And, and really trying to figure out, you know, how to address that and work with across the two systems. And I'm just curious, we interviewed Kate Bellin from Fannie Lou Hamer High School uh, talking about the Algebra Project, and we're going to be talking with Bob Moses, who is the founder of it, of course. And I was just curious whether in any of your work, especially around math, you've worked with any schools or districts that have been using the Algebra Project, and if so, whether that's sort of helped with some of the stuff that you're talking about? I have not personally worked with any that were doing the algebra project, but I know even in New York City, they have part of the mayor's excellence and equity agenda is algebra for all. 
So the goal is to have all eighth grade students in New York City passing at least an intro to algebra type course. So it doesn't become a barrier. I mean, it really, what happens between eighth and ninth grade is a mirror of then what happens for graduating seniors entering first year college. It, math is also a barrier at that, at the eighth grade, ninth grade level as well. But I've heard wonderful things about, about the algebra project. And I know it, it has, it's a long standing program that, um, it's been, you know, it's been around. When you, when a program survives, it usually is a testament to it's making a difference. A good point. There's been a lot of discussion recently about whether college for all is actually a desirable goal. Can and should fit and match be applied to situations in which students are not interested in college? Yes, this is such a wonderful question. I mean, really, it's inherent to fit and match that college is not for all that fit and match is about finding out what is the right post-secondary option for students. And that may be college and it may not be college. You know, I think it's interesting that in a lot of cities, including New York City, the office that they have looking at this work are, you know, here it's called the Office of Post-Secondary Readiness. I mean, just in naming it that, there's an acknowledgement that we're not just talking about college. And, you know, I tend to think of post-secondary education in a very broad sense, you know, two or four year colleges, specialized technical schools, apprenticeship certificate programs, AmeriCorps type programs such as City Year, um, and also, of course, the military. But I, I do think the matching fit, in some ways, it, it just was the idea, the concept was sort of made to recognize the idea that college is not necessary for all students, uh, as you said, at least immediately after high school. I think that, you know, one scary statistic, though, for a lot of people working in high schools is that there is research that shows that students who go to college directly, the semester directly after graduating from high school, tend to do better than students who take time off. So that's something to wrestle with. But I will give you, you know, I do think a lot more training is needed for schools to be able to advise students on these not, you know, college alternative pathways. More experts are needed to really kind of understand how best to, to help families and students consider these different options. Because there's high stakes in making that decision. And I'll give you, you know, a, a positive example. In, in New York City, there's a, an organization called Goddard Riverside Center, and, and they have something called the Options Institute. And they've been partnering for a long time with the New York City Department of Education, particularly the Office of Post-Secondary Readiness. And they basically are responsible for training all of the Department of Ed counselors, college counselors in the city. But this just this year, they're now offering another training around educational and work-related alternatives to college. So I think, you know, there's just growing acknowledgement that we're not serving our students well by taking the, the college access for all literally. It's really access to post-secondary for all. So how does career and technical education, CTE, fit into these discussions? And how is today's CTE different from the older vocational education programs? Yeah, so CTE is, is different from the older vocational programs in a couple of really key ways. One is that they are intended to be as academically, academically rigorous as any other school's program. So they're not aimed at students who are sort of considered non-academic. Students. And, and in a lot of cases, they do have very ac rigorous academic components. 
Also, I think this is a, a really great thing is that they all, regardless of what career or technical area the school is focused on, they all are required to teach a year-long course called Career and Financial Management. And so that's a course where students are really learning about the concept of career pathways um, and that career pathways are, are, don't have to be linear. In fact, they often are not. It can include a total career change. The concept around career pathways is that everyone has agency to determine their career pathways. And, and then the financial management piece, I think, is, is really important, too, because it, it gets into a lot of sort of financial literacy. So it's really about helping students sort of have some of the skills they'll need going forward, regardless of whether they go to college or career. I mean, I, I just think it's one of those things where I, I think in the past, this is the other point I was going to make, is that there's a really a commitment at these schools, especially the ones I've talked to, to not counseling students directly into a career pipeline. That's just an option. And in fact, a lot of the counselors and teachers I've talked to at CTE schools say that students are kind of realizing by being at the school for four years that they don't want to go into this career area at all. And, and uh, that's obviously, a, you know, an invaluable realization. And I think some of us have had that situation where you do a job and you're like, oh, my God, it's not what I thought it was. And I don't want to do this. So the point of, of CT high schools, as opposed to both ed schools, I think, is it does not seal your fate, but it just gets you started on having an informed and intentional journey that has realistic parameters. A recent guest, Carla Shedd, talks about the carceral continuum, the way institutionalized racism pushes low-income youth of color towards jail or early death from very early ages, especially in cities like New York, where systems of school choice that can determine children's entire lives can start as early as elementary school. What can counselors do to interrupt and disrupt the carceral continuum? So this is such a, a big area as well, and, I, and I'm not a, an expert in this area at all. But I, I, you know, to tie it in to sort of the theme of this podcast around match and fit, I think that it's actually sort of points even more to the need for, hopefully for counselors to sort of advocate for match and fit as early as elementary school. And, and so parent coordinators are positions in every single New York City public school. It's a full-time position. And they, especially in elementary school, can play a really important role in helping families figure out sort of what are the best educational transitions for their child, particularly in elementary and middle school. You know, there's lots of students who will do fine at any middle school. And then there's a lot of students who will only sort of thrive in, in a more particular kind of situation. And parent coordinators, part of a main part of their job in elementary school is to sort of lead parents through that process and, and connect them with other parents who have students at various schools. So I think that's, you know, something that is a really important part of it. There's also something called inside schools. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And that's just a really amazing tool. It's online, it's free, and it allows parents to look at school profiles, you know, that very accessibly written, it gives them some statistics on the schools in terms of achievement levels, but it also just sort of gives an overall idea of what the school is like. It allows for people who have attended the school or know something about the school to comment on it. And it also just recently added a high school matching tool, which is not super sophisticated, but it does help you sort of winnow down, like, do you want to stay in a certain borough? Do you want a career in technical education school? 
you know, it, it helps to sort of put in some filters to sort of try to make sense of, of the sort of huge over, overwhelming number of choices. You know, so from some, a bigger perspective, I mean, I think it's been exciting. You know, New York City, it's just, I was just talking about this the other day, it's just it's shocking that it's the most segregated school system in the country. It's just that's a stone cold fact and it's just crazy, right? So, but I do think there's some promising practices around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And some of them are being piloted um, in District 1, District 3, and District 15, um, not without controversy, but there is, you know, it's, it's an acknowledgement that, especially in the middle schools, certain middle schools have really been taken over by white, more affluent people, whereas certain schools have then become dumping grounds for lower income students, and that that's not what middle school choice was intended to bring about. So it's kind of taking middle school choice and putting some parameters on it so that schools get a more balanced group of students. And so I think, you know, just, I don't know if it's going to work, but I think it's something to, to be aware of and, and to think about and hopefully advocate for. I will also say that, that New York City has a lot of free after school programs. And I, I don't, I feel like those go a little bit unsung or unnoticed, but basically in New York City, for elementary and middle school years, you can have free after school for your child's entire time in, in elementary and middle school. Now, that being said, there is an issue of quality consistency with some of these after school programs. And that's you know definitely something I'm aware that the city is trying to address as a high priority. If you want, I can give you an example of that regarding the summer youth employment program, which is. Sure, please. So, summer youth employment program um, has been around. I since the 50s and yeah it's been around a long time and it it really kind of grew there's been a lot of support for it but the way it grew was without much quality control and um only about two years ago what was happening was it was a lottery system so a student just was randomly assigned a summer youth employment opportunity it didn't matter what they were interested in it didn't necessarily matter where they lived you know, none of those fit and match things came into it. And so the, the city has been working with the Department of Ed and, and a lot of the providers that are involved with this work on doing something called school-based SYEP. And the idea is that the schools get involved with helping students to apply and, and make choices about what kind of employment opportunities, summer employment opportunities they want and would be a good fit for them. And then the schools also um, host some initial kind of trainings for students before they go off to their summer youth um, employment around, you know, just getting used to the work environment, some of those soft skills that employers say are, you know, gravely missing from their incoming employees, like communication, initiative, time management, those things. So, you know, they're taking that and really trying to continue to serve as many students as they can, but, but address some of the quality issues. And I, I think that's a, a really promising um, direction. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the more, more intentionality there can be for students in programs like, you know, Summer Youth Employment Program, and the more that DYCD, the yeah. Department of Youth and Community Development, can support after-school programs 
and you know provide professional development. We we do some professional development uh, for some of the after school programs, and you know staff members who are just incredible, but come without a whole lot of formal training, yeah. and a lot of times the training that they get is just real basic yeah. kind of stuff. Totally. So, and of course you're you're also talking about doing it in a part-time situation yeah. and so on, but it's a critical area because after school and out of school time can be so incredibly, you know, valuable. Especially for students who are at risk of, of incarceration or, you know, that have things in there that, you know, they need these extra sort of safe spaces, positive spaces for them to be able to access. So yeah, I, I think it's a really, really important area that, you know, I think people overlook it a lot. Yeah. And and also, I just wanted to add to your shout out to Inside Schools, which I think the website's insideschools.org. Yeah. I might be wrong on no, that. No, you're right. But I think it's really valuable because one of the nice things about it is that it's not an official Department of Ed website exactly. so that people can actually give their individual impressions. It's not like somehow having pressure that you've got to, you know, with the best of intentions, be following kind of a party line. On, on a school, so. so they're very frank, and they they divide every profile I think into the upside and the downside. So yeah. they definitely you know, want to make sure is doing well, and then the things that the school may not be doing so well. So going back to you know you just made reference to sort of inevitably or maybe not inevitably, but in a lot of cases there end up being schools that are dumping grounds in quotes. Yeah. So obviously helping you know, for the individual counselor working with the individual student, their job is to help that student get the best match and fit that they possibly can. But if there are fundamentally still insufficient numbers of, quotes good middle schools or high schools, this is a larger question than counselors. But what role do you see counselors since they're, you know, right doing it on, on the front line, if you will, and also other professionals what can counselors, is there an ethical obligation, basically, for all professionals dealing with schools to be adding to the pressure, both to integrate the schools and that there should not be any bad schools? That, you know, I worked for Tony Alvarado in District 2 years ago, and he was a supporter of school choice, but his argument was that parents or students should be able to choose based on sort of the the kind of classrooms that they wanted to be in, not whether they wanted to be in a good classroom or a bad classroom, that all schools should be good. (laughs) And then if you prefer sort of a first name basis with your teachers, that's one thing. If you prefer, you know, a more strict and formal situation, that's another thing. But it shouldn't be like, am I going to learn to read or am I going to learn to do math? So what do you see as kind of the civic obligation that comes with all of this for counselors and teachers and principals and everybody else? Well, I will say that I think all New Yorkers have an ethical obligation to advocate for a system of good schools. You know, if our students in our, our public talent pipeline, because that's what the New York City public school system is, it's a public talent pipeline. If, if our students are successful, it benefits the entire city's economy and safety. I mean, there's just such a strong economic argument in, in addition to an ethical argument. So I do think that something, you know, so you could say I don't have students, I don't have kids in the school system, or I send my kids to private school or whatever, but you're still part of the city 
And when students are not doing well in schools and, and, and going into their adulthood, having had the educational systems fail them, that is going to come back on city in, in ways that are very costly and painful. So I just think it's, it's sort of, you know, a universal um, obligation for all New Yorkers. You know, I mean, counselors and educators, they have some of the hardest jobs in the world, literally. And they, you know, they work so hard and I know it's hard for them to fit in yet just another, even anything into their lives in addition to sort of having to become sort of out there, you know, leaving calls for change. But I, I do think by choosing to do to do the, the work in ways that they know are effective for one, and and speaking up when they're in situations where they're ju it's just untenable. So they they have you know over 300 students to one counselor ratios. Not just being complacent about that and saying, well, I'll just do the best I can, and some students will win and some will lose. That's the way it goes. You know, really trying to change that within their own schools, ask for help, advocate for things like advisory, distributive counseling. There's a ton of CBOs in this city that offer high quality college access and success programs that will partner with schools um, and that can be paid for through public funding. So I would just say not being complacent is, is an important thing for counselors and professionals to do, especially if they don't have other things that they can do in a more sort of citywide, like public way, at least sort of be focused on what they can do in the, in the situation that they're in. Some counselors may have strong ethical qualms about choices such as the military. Others may be influenced by organizations like 80,000 Hours, which urge young people to think about the societal impact of their career choices beyond just individual success or fulfillment. To what degree is it appropriate for counselors to raise these questions? Yeah, no, I think this is a really great question. It sort of comes back to that tension question of what counselors are going to have to address certain things that where there's no easy answers or there's no one right answer. So, I mean, from my perspective, I think it's important to provide the pros and cons of all options. I do think counselors, you know, part of building trust with students and families is being able to is for counselors to talk from their own experiences. So if counselors can state their opinions and base them on facts or experiences in their own life or with previous students, I think that's, that's important to share, you know, all the while emphasizing that this is ultimately the student's journey, not theirs. I do think that it's naive, though, to think that counselors have the strongest sort of sway on students. In one of the focus groups I did uh, last spring that I was mentioning with 11th grade public school students, the students said that they were really most influenced by older siblings, by peers, and by favorite teachers. In some cases, because they just didn't have a lot of opportunity to meet with the counselor. So I think sort of knowing that students are going to get, you know, different points of view from, and obviously from social media and from other places is important to take into account. So it's, you are just providing another kind of source of information and advice. And, and I think, you know, you have to be true to yourself as a counselor, when, especially if you know a student well and they're considering an option that you think they should be aware of the different pros and cons. So you mentioned, obviously, the tremendous load, caseload, if you will, that counselors have in New York City and in a lot of other cities and rurally as well, I suspect. 
what would you say, including this or in addition to this, what do you think the biggest obstacles for counselors in, say, New York City are to do their jobs effectively? And are there things that our audience, for example, can do to try to help them overcome these obstacles? That's a good question. I mean, not to be a broken record, I do think that the ratio of students to counselors is one of those universally acknowledged problems all over the country, frankly, and it's just one that doesn't seem to have political will around a solution. I, I'm working with an initiative called Career Ready NYC. It comes out of the office for the Center for Youth Employment, sorry, the Center for Youth Employment, and, you know, in there, there's ideas being floated around, you know, could there be career counselors that are shared among clusters of schools? For CTE schools, going back to them, in each CTE school, you have to have a work-based learning coordinator. And that person plays a very big role in sort of counseling students about what kinds of career options they're interested in, and then particularly what kind of work-based learning opportunities they want to do, and matching them with internships and things like that. And those work-based learning coordinators are, for some strange reason, required also to be a classroom teacher. So they are <laughs> juggling just an impossible load. And in some cases, CTE schools are able, CTE schools will sometimes form sort of a, a council and that they bring employers onto to sort of lighten the load of a work-based learning counselor coordinator having to find employers who are willing to take students or they try to set up agreements with larger institutions, for example, a hospital, so that they don't have to go to multiple places to find places for students to do job shadows or get a career mentor and do that. But addressing that ratio that problem of, of the overload of work based learning counselors in CPE schools is really important and that's something that this career ready NYC uh, initiative is, is looking to advocate for. So I, I think that, again, it's just each student has a unique path that they're going to follow, and students that are coming from low-income communities need sometimes more supports and, and more services to make their pathways viable. And so, you know, I, I guess it's just we need more adults who can advise and counsel students in those ways. I, I do think that, again, I mean, it might not feel very, you know, impactful, but I do find as a parent myself of, of students in the public school system, um, elementary and middle right now, that I, ask, I try to ask questions. You know, why don't we have this? Why don't we do this? If I see something that I feel like is really being overlooked. I don't, it doesn't always lead to change or you don't always get the answer that you want, but at least asking questions. Again, you can often, a, a good advocate can then be the um, parent coordinator in your school. It, it also can be something that you can bring, raise um, to the PTA or the PA level. And, you know, even if you can't, don't have time to be part of a PTA or a PA, those are bodies that sometimes can advocate and push for, for things that, you know, is a, is coming is powerful because it's coming from parents. But I do think, you know, frankly, more money in the school system. I they, sometimes people say money doesn't matter, but it does matter. It, it definitely matters. 
matters to, to bring down the size of classrooms, and it matters for um, technology, and it matters for ratio of adults to students in these more specialized roles. Thank you so much, Mara Bio. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Check out our website for episodes and blogs, or contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We've begun to post annotated transcripts of our interviews, and we offer professional development on social-emotional learning and ethics in the New York City area. And we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denti. Till next week.